0: Okay, gentlemen, looks like we've hit time, so we can get started here back in First Corinthians chapter 10. We'll make a little headway and maybe get to the end of Paul's rather protracted argument here in terms of his advice to the Corinthians how to navigate the eating of food sacrificed to idols, a section that, of course, began back in chapter 8 and that we won't really reach a conclusion until um, we hit 11.1. It's all really the same argument. We'll see how that ties into one of the overarching problems uh, there in Corinth as well, and that's this licentiousness. Uh, They are misinterpreting their freedom in the gospel to be a freedom to participate in all kinds of things that Christians shouldn't participate in. So we'll pick up there. We'll have our opening prayer. I'll make a couple comments that I should have made or at least made more clearly last week, and then we'll get into the uh, new material. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, may your graces be poured out upon us for the sake of your Son, our Savior Jesus Christ. And this Advent season, we give thanks and praise for his incarnation for this wonderful, glorious mystery that on account uh, we have a Savior who became as we are, that he might bear our sins and put them away forever, and indeed one as we are, who in our flesh now sits enthroned with you in the heavenly realm. And therefore we need not fear, but even as we look to the close of this age, we might lift up our heads knowing that our redemption draws near. Bless us as we study your word. May we be filled with boldness to see your word, for what it is, and to believe it as it is. In Jesus' name, amen. So the two clarifications last week that I kind of, as I went home and was marinating on things, one is I made the distinction between crass and subtle idolatry. It was a question I think Barry answered, and and I'm satisfied with that distinction. I think it's a fine distinction. But one thing that I should have given a little more credence to or credit to is the Reality that as Western civilization became one with Christianity, the re, the objective reality is that much of crass paganism departed. It's just simply, rea- it's why we don't have a temple to Athena or Zeus or this or that god ostensibly all around us. Now, should Western civilization, and by that I really mean Christian civilization, continue to go through this great apostasy I fully expect in the next hundred years or so, maybe even less, that we will have a resurgence of crass paganism all around us. And we will have people going out into the woods and the hilltops and doing all kinds of ancient idolatries again. So I do, you know, I was asked for examples of crass idolatry right, you know, in our midst. And I, and I put forward some, uh, some ideas. About that, some things to consider may have overstated a thing or two. I don't, I don't know. But be that as it may, we, we should give credit where credit is due. And that is that Western civilization, as Christian civilization, has booted out a lot of the crass forms of idolatry. Not all of them, to be sure. And God willing, then, we can press forward and regain some ground because the alternative is bleak. The alternative is really bleak. And that's not to say that there aren't forms of crass idolatry all around us. Of course, the sacrifice of children in our midst is satanic, is really the worship of Molech, that kind of thing. The eat, drink, and be merry, The uh, just living life for one's pleasure is really Bacchanalian, is really a worship of Bacchus. So that stuff's there, but it's just not there in such a way that you can go right to a temple and worship it. You know, If you go to other parts of the world, if you go to India, for example, pagan temples all over the place, real crass pagan temples where you can go and participate in the worship, that kind of thing. So I wanted to make that uh, clarification. We should not look down our nose at what Christian civilization has done for us, and we should work to... Reinstate that. and then the other um, we can just pick up with fourteen. And I want to make sure that I, because I, I think I might have missed this point. Um, so at First Corinthians ten fourteen, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I I speak as to sensible people, judge for yourselves what I say, the cup of blessing that we bless. And I want to make this clarification, the cup of blessing I I talked about last week, that we bless, that phrase is very much, of course, the words of institution. And we're going to see that in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where Paul's going to state that. So the blessing of the cup, he doesn't say it outright, but also then the blessing of the bread, this is going to be the words of institution making a distinction from one kind of cup, the common cup, common drink, and this cup of blessing that we bless, that is thus a koinonia, participation in the blood of Christ. Okay, so I want to make that clarification, in case I botched that last week. So again, then, just to bring us up into the new material, verse 16, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation, a communion in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, there's the parallel that we, to we bless, is we break. The bread that we break, is it not a koinonia, a participation in the body of Christ? Verse 17, because there is one bread, or one loaf would be a fine way to translate that. We who are many are one body. Now there's a little bit of linguistic algebra going on here. The bread that we break is it not a koinonia, a communion in the body of Christ? It is. Now back to the bread because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. If we eat the bread that is his body, then we are one body. This is really the root origin of Paul's imagery of the church as the body of Christ. And I've submitted to you before, it's not like Paul was sitting on a grassy hill one day, kind of scratching his brow, thinking, what am I going to preach? Uh, okay, well, there's some diversity in the church. What can I liken that to? Oh, the human body, you know, it's there's diversity amongst the members of the human body and yet a unity of that But No, that's not what he does. It it comes from this reality that as we partake of the body of Christ, we are the body of Christ. Paul's going to go on in chapter 11 to say that he is our head. He is the head of the body. So the analogy simply goes forward. And I want to point that out. Wherever Paul's talking about the church as the body of Christ or the diversity of the members of the body and the unity of that body, it all stems from Holy Communion, participation in the body of Christ. Okay, so there is one bread, thus we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. It is a unity not only with Christ, but with one another. And that's a foundational principle of Holy Communion. It's articulated here, Communion can never just be me and Jesus. It can never just be you and Jesus. A holy communion is always a communion with one another and with him. A vertical dimension and a horizontal dimension. We'll have opportunity to talk some when we hit chapter 11 and get into the problem that's going on in Corinth in regard to their practice of the Lord's Supper, we'll have opportunity to talk about closed communion. That's the phrase we know it as. It's a little bit redundant, even in and of itself, because a communion is a sharing, a participation, a oneness amongst all who are gathered there. We see already then there's a vertical dimension to that oneness, we're united with Christ. It's a koinonia in his body and in his blood, but it's also a oneness horizontally with one another. So where we know that that unity doesn't exist, we can't pretend as though it did. Okay? So this is, in itself, a sufficient basis for closed communion, But we'll see that all the more in chapter 11. There is a horizontal dimension, a unity of all who partake, and a vertical dimension, a unity then with the Lord. Insufficient are the kind of communion statements that have been popular for some decades now. They were popular in the old ALC, the American Lutheran Church, that shore up the vertical. So the communion statements frequently run something like, if you believe that you're receiving the body and blood of Christ, then come on up to the altar and commune with us. Or there might be various other kinds of uh, vertical considerations. If you believe God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, if you believe that Jesus Christ is true God and true man, if you believe that you're a sinner in need of forgiveness, if you believe that this is the body and blood of Christ given for you, then you all come. That only pays attention to the vertical dimension. The problem with that is immediately articulated when you go, well, a Roman Catholic could affirm all those things. Are we to commune with a Roman Catholic? An Eastern Orthodox could affirm all those things. Are we to commune then with the Eastern Orthodox? They would answer that question definitively, no. (laughs) And we should, at their altars, they would say no. And so too should we. Because altogether we're recognizing that even if we're, there's a certain agreement on the vertical dimensions of that unity with Christ and with what he says, there's not an agreement in the horizontal dimensions. There's enough substantive disagreement between us that you actually form. Now, we use the language of denominations, which has to do with the naming, different names. But really rather, and properly speaking, this is how they were always known through the history of the church, different Communions. In fact, I try to clean up my language when I'm, at least when I'm being technical in, 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 or in, the, uh, in these conversations, that they are really not denominations as much as they're different communions. That's what, so you can't commune in one place and commune in another. It's an act of, uh, it's really, properly speaking, an act of spiritual ignorance because you have two mutually exclusive communions, and you're effectively saying, well, I'll participate in both. Right? Okay, so we can then see, even here at, uh, and, and those of you just joining us, 1 Corinthians 10, 17, that there is a, a communion not only vertically with us and Christ, but a, communi- a communion horizontally because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Okay, let me pause there. See if you have anything you want to chat about or add. Or yes, sir. About the communion. Was this um, the way uh, we understand communion and communing with each other? Was that a very similar, the same way they did it, and like. Those days or the very earliest days? I mean, when did it go? All the different communions happen, I guess it was during the Reformation? Or? Early, yeah, earlier than that. So there's a really helpful book called The Eucharist in the First Four Centuries. It's by a German Lutheran theologian, Werner Ehlert. Now, Ehlert's not very good on some other stuff, but this particular text is historical. And it's fantastic because it'll show you that denominations creep up the way, I mean, even the modern phenomenon of denominations, properly speaking, different communions pop up very early, very early. You can even see them in uh, the first century and the second century. So even a book like, we studied 1 John even recently, even a book like 1 John, those who went out from us, that's now an establishment of two different communions insofar as they still claim to be Christian, insofar as they might still participate and at least say that they're participating in the Lord's Supper. Those are two now two separate communions. So those kinds of corporate divisions, so to speak, that are substantive enough to result in multiple communions, are there very early. And as you can tell from the title of the book I just mentioned, the Eucharist in the first four centuries, different different communions exist from the very start. It's kind of a Roman Catholic apologetic canard that denominations or different communions began with the Reformation. Anyone remotely familiar with church history knows that that's just an outright lie. Denominations have been around forever. Different, different communions have been around forever. As soon as you communica- excommunicate a group of theologians and they assert, no, we're the true church, you now have Two communions so that'll help you understand too. the nature of excommunication is saying you're not you're, you say to an individual that on the basis of your beliefs what you're stating or on the basis of your life in the case of first corinthians the man who's uh engaged in the indecent sexual relationship with his stepmother Say on the basis of your faith or on the basis of your life, you're outside of this communion. That's the nature of excommunication. And I guess where there's no church membership, which is really out of vogue, that takes the horizontal. There's nothing to to grasp onto. That. That's a great. That's a great question. I'm glad you brought it up. Okay, so what is church membership? Now, I think and. i I just thought this naturally because this is the soil where we we grow out of this is the fish tank we're swimming in membership is like you know i'm a member of costco (laughs) my wife pays a fee and i've got a card and they welcome me when i come in and flash my card okay so so there's this idea then that that just gets transferred into our minds naturally that church membership isn't much different Uh, where are you a member Where are you kind of bought in? Where's your club that you've joined? That's an entirely alien idea, both to the scriptures and to the church. What is the language of membership in the Pauline way of thinking? If you're a member, you're a member of a body, the body of Christ in that place. That is, so where you partake of the body of Christ, you are a member of the body of Christ in that place. That's the essence of membership. So if people, I'll just be really concrete, when people are accepted into Holy Communion here at Faith, they become a member of the body of Christ in this place. Now that's true whether we have them Formally recognized as "quote unquote" members in the church office, whether we've checked the box off on the computer program and given you a, a little puka box and the Narthex and a copy of the Constitution and maybe had a cake that says "Welcome," that that's all. That's all completely uh, of human origin. The divine concept of church membership is where you where you. Commune, you are a partaker of the body of Christ in that place, and thus you become a member of the body of Christ in that place. I I don't want to come down too hard on it again, but this is where, to a degree, even the individual wafers and the individual communion cups can work to further this idea of it's just me and Jesus, or further this idea of. Um, well, I'm just communing with Jesus in this place. And, and you kind of even get a sense of entitlement sometimes. Certain visitors will come here and just assume that they have the right to commune at this place because they're a Christian and there's Jesus. What they're missing is this entire reality that they're not members of the body of Christ here, and that membership... In the body of Christ here, in the communion that takes place here, has vertical dimension and horizontal dimension. So this has gotten so perverted that in, in many churches here in the West, communion is just viewed as a hospitality meal. So if you come in the door, people are throwing, well, in these churches it's often bread and grape juice, or whatever else, because if you don't believe it's the body and blood of Christ, if you're willing to reject that, how, how easy is it to reject that you need bread and wine? Uh, even on social media, it was making the rounds. Some mega-church some mega pastor was saying, on this basis, I can do whatever I want, and we've communed with Jesus with, I can't remember what he said, something like saltines and uh, soda. Or, I mean, this is literally a practice in some of these big-box churches. So it's a disaster. And then churches that practice open communion, there are many uh, who claim to be LCMS who practice open communion, and they really betray. We'll get into this when we get to uh, 1 Corinthians 11, because you'll see the Pauline logic. But they really betray a belief that that it isn't the true body and blood of Christ. Because if they believed it was the true body and blood of Christ, then they would make sure that those who commune there and partake of the body and blood of Christ are A... In communion with him vertically, and B are in communion with the others gathered there horizontally. This is the uh, this is the practice from the earliest church. It's the it's this practice of closed communion is in the Book of Concord. So if you want to be a historical Lutheran, it's there. And of course, the Book of Concord makes its argument on the basis of the Scriptures and on the basis of the tradition of the Church citing early church fathers who would stand receiving some and uh, denying others communion as they came forward. And so that has always been the practice of the church. Okay, so that on the basis then of uh, verse 17, and of course, we'll see this again in 11, true membership in the body of Christ is derivative of partaking of, of the body of Christ in that place. So before you go any further, yes, sir. I ask a question about the tradition of using the individual wafers? Sure. Could you imagine, well, oh, okay, just uh, when did that start, but also, like, can you imagine going back to having like, the unleavened bread and drinking it? And- I can't imagine it. <laughs> <laughs> and there are uh, there are churches that do this churches larger than ours the congregations larger than ours that do this. Uh, they have unleavened bread. the bread is broken and distributed. Um, it takes some effort. Why the wafers have come about is is a a matter of convenience it 's almost what drives everything uh, b maybe the m- maybe the best pro or the best case for them is, is they're designed in such a way to, to minimize crumbs. But minimize crumbs. I mean, at a certain point, this is all silly. If you know anything about physics, it's all kind of silly, you know. So I don't, I don't know how much weight that argument holds. So yes, I can imagine it, and maybe we should consider it. But you do take the, <laughs> the divine service, you break the bargain, right? Again, we break the larger one. That, so the act of breaking um, is really just done because I can't fit the whole thing in my mouth. Yeah. It's a practical thing. It's not a theological thing that you break the bread. Um, the breaking of the bread is used as a kind of uh, idiom, maybe there's a better word for that, for the Lord's Supper in the Scriptures. So you can see this in uh, Acts, for example, where they continue in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in the prayers. Do we think breaking of the bread there means like the sharing of peanut butter sandwiches, the potluck? No. So it is the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, the breaking of the bread, which is shorthand for Holy Communion, Um, as it is here. The bread that we break, is it not a Participation of the body of Christ. So the breaking of the bread, and again, if you go back to the words of institution, which is really where all the theology of the Lord's Supper. When Jesus communes, do you remember when he the the night on which he's betrayed? Who is he at table with? The disciples, and in fact, that's explicit on the night in which he's betrayed. He took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to. The disciples. Now, who is a disciple? You have to go back to the red-letter words. Ask Jesus. I mean, all theology flows from what Jesus says. The rest of the New Testament is a commentary on the red letters. So what does he say as a disciple? Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. There's the first line of closed communion. Of course, today things are in such a sad state that they'll commune anyone, even unbaptized people. Uh, I've seen evangelical churches welcome uh, unbaptized, welcome even uh, Muslims to communion. I mean, at that point in time, you may as well just sell the property. (laughs) At that point in time, it's just wild. We're so far away. We're so far away. It's not salvageable. Uh, So make disciples of all nations. How do you make disciples? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them the bare minimum so that they can commune? All things whatsoever I have commanded you. So baptizing and teaching is what makes a disciple. Only disciples are those who are at the table of the Lord. So that's absolutely essential, is that he's commuting the disciples. And back to the question, uh, I hope I'm not wandering too much here, but back to the question of the bread. Remember, he takes the bread, he gives thanks. beautiful thing about Jesus is he always gives thanks before. Um, He gives thanks to God before the miracle is performed. So that is, when it is not yet there, he's already thanking God. Beautiful, beautiful theology there. And so he takes the bread, he breaks it, or he gives thanks, he breaks it, and he gives it to them, and he says, this is my body. So it's already the broken bread that is his body then. We've already talked about how it's problematic to think of it as like his body broken for you. Well, not one of his bones was broken, and that's a pretty big deal. So that symbolism isn't isn't great, and it isn't there native in the red letters anyway the breaking of the bread then is near, is is purely a matter of uh practicality it is too and we have the large wafer we say the peace of the lord be with you always there's a rich theology there it's not just sentimentality remember as jesus is we we just had this account in matthew but remember when jesus is entering jerusalem and he's riding on the donkey and of course the people are shouting hosanna and dropping palm branches and their jackets on the road kind of makeshift red carpet and jesus instead of kind of like having his head held up high and you know giving people the point like (laughs) uh, he's weeping and he's weeping because they know not what makes for their peace What makes for their peace? Only his body given on the cross and his blood shed on the cross. That's what makes for their peace. So liturgically, when we hold up the body and blood of Christ and say, the peace of the Lord be with you, we're making a very specific and very powerful statement of belief and confession that the peace of the Lord, the peace, what makes for your peace, is the body that he gives on the cross, now given for you to eat, and the blood that he sheds on the cross, now given for you to drink. That is your peace, and you are participating in that sacrifice of Calvary, made present for you now. That's the peace of the Lord be with you always. Okay, because that's a large wafer, the small wafer, you know, it's fine, who cares, but nobody can see what I'm doing, so it just looks weird. So that we used a large wafer, and then I can't fit that whole thing in my mouth, so we break it. But there's no theological significance to the breaking. There is um, a history in that's kind of uh, that's connected to the lutheran practice in america of not breaking the bread unless it's of absolute necessity and that is because during the prussian union so this is over in europe prussia it is coming by governmental decree that the reformed and the lutherans must worship at the same altars and commune at the same altars what the Reformed would do at that time is they would say, hey, we're going to break the bread. And they teach the people the symbol of the fact that this is not Christ's true body is that we are breaking that. It's just symbolic. So the fractio panis, the breaking of the bread, uh, takes on a meaning. And that specific context takes on a meaning, and that meaning imposed upon the people by the, by the Reformed pastors. When you hear that bread break, you just know that it's not the true body of Christ that you're receiving in your mouth. Okay, well, obviously, whether you think that that makes sense or not, obviously disagree with it theologically, but whether you think it makes sense or not doesn't matter. That's what it was given. So that breaking of the bread came to mean something. And and if you remember anything about our history, the, the Prussian Union is ultimately what leads Lutherans to depart from there we're not going to be forced into this community. We're going to have to leave our homes. Where are we going to go? Let's go to the New World. So when Lutherans come over in the middle of the 19th century, especially those Lutherans that then become the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, when they come over, there's, um, there's already this practice of not breaking the bread unless it's necessary to do so. And so we, we really have retained that. That's how it's gotten written into our, our tradition, that sort of practice, up to the very present. How would that work? Practically, they would have a piece of unleavened bread and pass it around if they didn't buy it? No, you're already talking about uh, either either pre, so you're really talking about the host um, that, the, that the pastor is using, right, as the symbol of it being broken, right? Um, in, in practicality, they didn't have the nice little wafers that we had. They probably already had the bread. They're still breaking it and distributing it. That's not the thing. The thing was that as the pastor holds it up and breaks it, that, that, that action, which is neither here nor there, is just imbued with the meaning contextually. Say, when we do this, this is what it means. And so the Lutherans wouldn't do that as a confession against that, that theology. Okay, so that just gives you a little sense for why things are the way they are. I know that's insider baseball. I can see some eyes... Ice- glossing over, and that's actually okay. I'm fine with that. All right, are we okay? Feeling settled on the main points here? Um, just a quick question. Back in Numbers, uh, the Aaronic Blessing, uh, there's an element of that where it says, may God's peace be upon you. Uh, God instructed Moses brother Aaron to bless the people with that. So mm. that's a different kind of peace. I don't think so. Um, it is, so the peace that God gives to, gives to his people is always the peace of reconciliation in his son. Now, at the time of, of Aaron, we call that the Aaronic benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord look upon you with favor or lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. That peace is predicated upon Christ who is going to come. And that, so all peace is still predicated upon now Christ who has come. Now, all peace with God is peace in Christ. And there is a different form, obviously, because that's simply a, a... And what a blessing. What a blessing to end the service with a benediction, which means good words and these promises um, Properly speaking, it's, uh, the Lord bless you. It's, it's a, it's a simultaneously a prayer and a proclamation that he would bless you and that he would keep you, obviously sustain you, um, that he would make his face shine upon you, which is an amazing statement. When the, when the face of the Lord shone upon Moses, Moses' face shone in return, (laughs) shined in return. And so he had to Mask up, as it were, but the uh, he, he put the veil on his face. But that's that's the beauty is that the face of the Lord is shining upon us, and I, you know, it's a it is a sort of also a kind of promise to the beatific vision, to seeing the Lord face to face. Maybe I'll preach about this a little bit on Wednesday when I talk about oratio prayer, but the. Um, I've, I've been struck with this now that I have kids. My kids want to get so close to me when they talk to me that like all I can see is their face and all they can see is my face. And man, there is a, the spit flies. I tell you what, little kids have no control when it comes to that. But aside from that, it's this, it's this visual perception that all you see is the face of someone. You're that close and that intimately combined. Your whole field of vision is absorbed in their face. That's, a, that is, I want to, see my heavenly Father the way they see me. That's the beatific vision. You see nothing but the face of God. So already in the Aaronic benediction, there is a reference to that and a, and a hopefulness in that, that the Lord would make his face shine upon you, that he would be gracious to you, that he would not treat you as your sins deserve, but treat you as a loving father. And of course, then, that he would look upon you with favor is easy. That makes sense but that he would lift up his countenance, that is, that he would cause his face to smile upon you. Instead of being a downcast countenance, um, your face, why why are you downcast? Um, His face would be lifted up and delight in seeing you, Um, delight to have you as his own. What a great way to end the service with those words of God and those blessings of God uh, spoken upon his people thousands of years ago now spoken upon us. I can hardly think of a better way to end the service. That's a lot of of the argument with the liturgy, too, is it's like, okay, well, you don't like it. You're free in Christ to change it. What do you got that's better? (laughs) That's a pretty darn good argument for the liturgy as it stands, isn't it? Good, good. How would you improve it in your Christian freedom? Yeah. Okay, right. So then um jumping back in. Are we okay? All right. And again, we'll have more time to to dwell on the Lord's Supper. I I love it as much as you do as we hit uh, the eleventh chapter here. 18, consider the people of Israel, which of course harkens back to the section that we covered um starting in chapter ten. Remember this whole example of the of the people of Israel. Now, uh, in your ESV, even the ESV study note, so we're not talking about the Lutheran study Bible note, just the ESV note itself at the bottom of the column, in Greek says, consider Israel according to the flesh. That's a more straightforward reading. Consider Israel according to the flesh. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What's he talking about? He's talking about the temple worship that's still going on in Jerusalem. That's why they're Israel according to the flesh. Remember what St. Paul says elsewhere, not all Israel is Israel? So Israel according to the flesh, that is to say, not the true Israel. The true Israel is commuting at the altar of Christ. Israel according to the flesh are eating the sacrifices of the altar. Consider the people of Israel is Ambiguous. Consider Israel according to the flesh. Makes perfect sense. Are not those who eat the sacrifices, uh, participants, again, same language, communicants, in that altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? So, we're back to the main thread. What about participate? Like, why can't I participate at the table of Christ and participate at the table of the false gods, what do I imply then, that food offered to idols is anything? No, he doesn't. He's already stated it's just food. Or that an idol in it is anything. No, of course not. There's one God, and the one God is the one who gives us all things to eat. No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, it's really what the nations sacrifice, they offer to demons. Demons and not to God. That's a helpful clarification, too, because is an idol anything? He's not saying it's necessarily a figment of someone's imagination. It can be. There's that kind of idolatry that's just imaginative. But they offer it to demons. In some cases, perhaps in most cases, what's really behind the pagan sacrifice is a demon. Now, I imply that what The nation's sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be communicants, koinonus, communicants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You can note the singularity there again. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Obviously not. Are we stronger than he? Obviously not. Okay, so jumping back to uh, chapter 8 very briefly and going down to the study note in your Lutheran Bible on page 1956. The study note is chapters 8 through 10, so it's a summary. Questions had arisen over whether Christians should eat food sacrificed to idols. This food was eaten, here's the first instance, in a temple dining room. Chapter 8, verses 7 through 13, and you can see the note specifically on 8.10. This is the first instance that he addresses, food eaten in a temple dining room. Is it permissible to eat that for a Christian? Sure, in and of itself, no problem. But what if it causes your brother's conscience to be defiled? then you need to limit your freedom out of love for your brother. So far, so good? Keep looking at that study note. Here's the next instance. At sacrifices involving actual idol worship. Now that's where we're at now. What does Paul say about that? Can you actually go to divine service and commune with the Lord and then go to an actual pagan service and eat of the sacrifices that's part of the worship? Nope. Right. There's the distinction. And then we're going to see two other distinctions already down here in the footnote, so let's just carry on. The, the third distinction listed here, purchased in the marketplace. We haven't got there yet, but we will. And the fourth, or eaten in an unbeliever's home. That's the fourth instance. So it's going to be these latter three instances that Paul addresses specifically now in chapter 10. The first of which is can you participate in the actual worship service and eat the food involved in the actual worship service of these pagan places these pagan temples and Paul's answer definitively is no at sometimes in the history of the church that's been called syncretism at other times unionism whatever we don't quibble over words whatever you want to call it it's forbidden so far, so good? Clear enough? Yes, sir. If we're considering the people of Israel. So, is, that, is he implying that the blood sacrifices of the Israelites prior to Christ were the form of idolatry? Uh, no, but he's he's probably saying that it is now. So he calls them the people of Israel, or Israel according to the flesh. His whole point in bringing them up is in 18 is really to establish the principle that you're, you have a oneness with Christ. Israel, according to the flesh, has a oneness with what happens at their altar. And what about the pagans? They likewise have a oneness, a communion or koinonia, with what happens in their altars. Already precluded is, I mean, they wouldn't eat the, the temple sacrifices any longer. They've already separated themselves from these things. Plus Corinth is a long ways away. So the whole principle is that, is that Paul's saying, look, where you, where you eat in worship is who you worship. And you can't do these at multiple places. That's all he's saying. Alright, now in 10.23 he requotes to them what they've been saying, all things are lawful. And that's really the basis, their kind of antinomian basis here. Uh, all things are lawful. Well, including the man who's sleeping with his stepmother. It's all lawful because the gospel covers whatever is sin. And obviously that's not the case. So in a sense now, he's taking us, and this is what I mean, um, all things are lawful. He's already mentioned clear back in 6, uh, chapter 6, verses 12 and 13. So here he's quoting them. All things are lawful. That's what they're telling Paul. So back in six twelve, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. This is the overarching problem in Corinth, is their leaven, their hubris, their belief that they get the gospel, uh, and their um, complete antinomianism as a result is really one of the overarching problems that's happening in Corinth that Paul's addressing. He leverages this language again in chapter 10, now specific to the question of their Practice of eating um, food sacrificed to idols. So at 23 of chapter 10, all things are lawful, but all not all things are hopeful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Okay, so anything I need to announce or say or do? No, we're okay. All right. So 24, uh, let no one seek his own good, but the good of the other. I know it says the good of his neighbor that I think that confounds things. It's just general right now. The good of, his, of the other. So you've got this freedom, but you can't exercise that freedom without, in the case of participating in the worship of Idols, that's, that's precluded. You're not actually free to do that. But as you look about these, at these other opportunities to eat food sacrificed to idols, exclusive of the worship service of them, the principle that governs it is, yeah, you're free in Christ, but you restrain that freedom in love for your neighbor. Okay, so let no one seek his own good, but the good of the other, or his neighbor. 25, then, is another instance. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. So the meat markets in Corinth and the ancient world in general, it's not like they've got these giant ranches all the meat is going to the temples the temples are sacrificing them and it's ending up in the markets so do I have to carefully vet you know that that ground beef and and source it for where it's come from and Paul's answer is going to be no this is going to be different than um, than uh, the old law because and especially what's developed out of that so Contemporary uh, Jews of Saint uh, in Saint Paul's time would say we need to vet where it comes from, and we need to make sure it was kosher. And Paul's saying you are free in Christ um, from those ceremonial laws. Uh, eat whatever is sold in the meat market. That's verse twenty-five, without raising any question on the ground of conscience. That is to say, don't even ask. Okay, so that's a that's then. Um, Another context, and here's his principle, 626, uh, he cited from Psalm 24, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. That was very often part of their common table prayers, so to speak. And so he's reminding them, and even as they pray this common table prayer, even as they bless the food, they're being reminded that an idol is nothing and this food is nothing and all things are given by the one true God for our benefit. K-27 introduces another situation. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner, I love this, and you are disposed to go. <laughs> you don't have to go to the dinner party if you don't want to. And you are disposed to go. Eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. All right, So you're sitting down at their table. You don't have to say, oh, by the way, where, where are these pork chops coming from exactly? <laughs> Just to eat. No No questions. No, nothing. Don't have to worry about it. 28 introduces a nuance. But what if somebody makes a big deal about it? (laughs) I feel bad for Paul. If you ever try to write this way, it is hard. It is hard. How do you cover every loophole or every situation or every circumstance? 28, but if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice. And this is somebody making a big deal about it. This isn't an off-the-hand remark. Then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, because your conscience is already free in Christ. You know it's nothing. But for his, for the sake of him who asked you, whether he's a believer or an unbeliever. That's That's, That's the problem I have with some of that is... The guy that says, if, if someone says to you, this is the opposite, right there that tells me that person is the one I would beat up. Why is he bringing that up? So that's where Paul is nice, where I wouldn't be. I'd beat the crap out of this individual. Because he's bringing this up purposely to make an argument. It may not be malicious. Oh. It may not be malicious. So um, remember... A lot of, a lot of ancient paganism is, hey, why won't you worship Jesus and our God? Why won't you just put Jesus right next to our gods? We could all get along just fine. Do you remember, this is hilarious, but one of the, one of the charges that um, the Roman persecutors of Christian, uh, of Christianity made against them is that they were atheists because they demanded in worshiping just one God instead of all the gods. They're atheists. <laughs> it's great. The persecution of Christians um, in the Old and New Testament has almost always come when the Christians say, no, this one and this one only. That's when the persecution arises. So it may not be malicious. It may be, um, I want you to know that the sacrifice to idols would be happy for you to partake. It'd be great. Yeah, but it says, because he said, he who informed you for, his, for the sake of his comforts, Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I, I see this way, you have to be nice, and I can't. <laughs> he bring that up, and it's, for his conscience, you're doing it. He was one of the. If he would have just kept his mouth shut, and we have just kind of eating, it would have been fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Master, yes, sir. Um, what happens if he informs you after you've already eaten it? Do you throw up on him, or what? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the the deed's done. The deed's done. You know, I I think where Paul's... uh, This is is reading a little bit into it, (coughs) but the study notes do, so I'm going to do it. The, the The final point and principle that Paul's going to make is that you use all things as an occasion for preaching Christ. So... You withhold out of love for your neighbor. If he had you eat it already and he's got like this, ha-ha, got you. You didn't even know it. You just sacrificed to idols. The proper response, I bet Paul, the response that Paul would give would be, oh, well, I can can do that because I wouldn't willingly choose to do that because I don't want to mislead you. There's one true God and one true cup and one true table from which we eat. So I, I would not have eaten if I knew that ahead of time. But now that I have eaten, let me tell you that it's nothing in Christ. I don't have anything to fear from your God or from any gods. God, The one true God made it all, blessed it all, and gave it to me for my good. So the idea, and, and we'll see Paul, in his own words, summarize this um, already where he says, let no one seek his own good but the good of the other. This is inclusive of uh, unbelieving Jews, unbelieving pagans, um, or fellow Christians. Everything we do should be a willingness to curtail our freedom for the sake of the of the objective good of our neighbor whoever he is yeah that's really the governing principle here so does that kind of no you wouldn't have to throw it up but i think paul would say um it's an opportunity to give an explanation for why it's no biggie to you and and you might even articulate why you wouldn't have done it if you knew it in advance but since you have eh, this is the uh, passover meal that you celebrate every year they have a they have a meal. The family gets together. It's a Passover meal. Well, they yeah. I mean, they're okay. They do have a Passover meal, but can you help me nail down the context of the, the specific question you're asking? Well, I mean, it, 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 the, 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 what they're eating has that been used for sacrifice? I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know the answer, but I just wonder if you knew the answer. Make the temple. What? Like who I has been the Temple. Yeah. So specifically in Corinth, I mean, what what we're talking about is, uh, of course, the Jerusalem temples way far away. What we're talking about are pagan temples. That okay, so it's, not, it's not like the current Passover meal that the Jews celebrate every year. That's not that's not that what we're talking about. Right. Right. the the pass The Passover meal. So when you, where you have Jewish converts the Passover meal, like in the first century, the observance of the Passover as such goes away because Christ, our true Passover, has come. Christ is our Passover lamb. We're having the Passover every divine service. We don't need to have the Passover once a year. With all the, that, that was the shadow. The reality has come. Mm-hmm. So that is, uh, and, and you can even see the author of Hebrews articulating this, those who eat uh, of the temple sacrifices so the Jews eating up the, have no right to eat from our table. That's closed communion. You know, I, I'm, I'm I'm sending you a question. This, this I went to a Jewish household right now uh-huh. and they continue to celebrate that feast where I'm being if I participate. So, okay, so <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Let me think about it. Alright, okay. so they invite you over. They say, hey, it's Passover. Even though you're not a Jew, we'd li- I don't know that they'd invite you over. Probably if they did, they're not taking it very seriously anyway. It's probably already just kind of a cultural custom. So, hey, we want you to come over and have Passover with us. I'd say, hey, how about if I came over and had a barbecue with you the next weekend? Why not just play it safe? Um, Do I think you're sinning? No. Um, If you go there and and you make clear, maybe it's an opportunity even to proclaim that Christ is the true Passover. Um, A lot of this business, uh, this is tangential, but a lot of churches... In the last, what would it be? Probably the last 40 years have started this thing called um, celebrating the Seder. Um, yeah, I've done it too. It's weird. Um, well, why it's weird is because it's basically completely made up. Nobody knows how the, how the Jewish Passover in Jesus' time was done. Nobody knows. So, oh, let's get back to doing all that. It's complete fiction. It's complete fabrication. Nobody knows any of it. Oh, let's eat the, let's eat the bitter herbs and remember the bitter problems. I mean, first of all, that was for Jews for a time. We're not Jews, <laughs> and there's no purpose in it, in participating in the shadow when the reality has come. Um, what what you might be learning from it by way of examples is kind of a fiction. I mean, why don't I concoct a little potluck meal and be like, oh, look, the pretzels have been stabbed into marshmallows in the shape of a cross cross reminds us of Jesus. You know, what, other, I mean, what other childish things can we come up with? Uh, it's, a, yeah, it's, it's really kind of silly, it's really kind of exercise in missing the point. And it's predicated upon just, uh, just real, bad, um, real bad loss of uh, our, our senses. Because, again, what is, what is put forward as the Seder meal is, it, is a complete fabrication. Nobody knows if that's even remotely close to what they did or what they ate or how it was practiced. So I would advise against it. And I'm not alone. I mean, our seminary faculties have come out and said as much. And some of our church leaders have come out and said as much. And by and large, I think it's, de- I think, I think it's decreasing in our midst. <laughs> but I participated in one. I had no idea. I mean, it's kind of a failure of our church body to even teach us. But yeah, I participated in one and, and I was nonplussed. I mean, I had, a, I had the thought like the whole time is why don't we just Move over to that building and have the better thing. <laughs> Pastor, did I have yes, a question about the uh, verse eighteen? Uh, consider the people of Israel. are um, uh, yeah. Those who eat the sacrifices, participants in the altar, is that is that um, the meat of the sacrifice? Was that only eaten by the priests, or was it distributed to those? Is that yeah, there are, there, there are times in which uh, the laity, the, not just the Levitical priests or the, or the Levites, their families, um, would be able to participate and, and partake of the sacrifices. Yeah, there are instances. Don't ask me which one specifically. I don't know, and I'm not sure I have the fortitude to go reading through Leviticus and trying to guess. Yeah, there, that, that's right. So what, what Paul is really doing here, though, if you, if you look at, um, 18, obviously what's preceded it, 18, and then moving on to the, to the pagan temples, the temp, or, or excuse me, the pagan tables, the table of demons, as you see it in 21, he's, he's establishing a principle that we'll call, um, like altar fellowship or table fellowship. So, you've probably heard, if you're, a, if you've been Lutheran for any amount of time, you've heard this phrase, altar and pulpit fellowship. Are you in altar and pu- pulpit fellowship with this church or that church? Or, um, it's, it's a point that's established on this basis that where one worships at that altar, at that table, um, you're in fellowship there. You can't be in fellowship at another altar or table that's diametrically opposed to that. So you have an, you have a table fellowship on the basis of the Lord's table. You have a table fellowship of the uh, temple, but that only exists until 70. Then it's destroyed, and that's off the table. Then you have another, no pun intended, then you have another um, fellowship, the table fellowship or altar fellowship that is going to an actual demonic house of worship and partaking. And you can only have fellowship at one of those tables. And that's why he's saying, Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He? I guess of all those, there are no real pagan sacrifices that we would have to deal with in our modern day, other than probably the piece we would run into is like uh, you talked about the Passover. Yeah, yeah. I don't think there's yeah, right. So that's that. Yeah. And I, that's why I wanted to begin the class the way I did with kind of that additional information that on account of the Christian West, we don't deal with this crass, these crass pagan. Now the closest I can come, I mean, trying to be like, what if, I mean, what if somebody said to you, so you're, you're like, um, somebody invites you to downtown Disney and that, you know, you're going to eat it at some kind of Disney themed restaurant. And then they want to make this big deal about it. They want to say, hey, this food you're eating, you know, the money we're paying is all going to support. And then they start listing off all the nasty anti-Christian things that Disney supports. And, and they make a big deal about it. That might be an opportunity to say, you know, hey, is that is that somebody being provocative and saying, hey, this has been offered as a sacrifice? Verse uh, 28. That might be an opportunity to say, you know what, I lost my appetite there's nothing wrong with this food. God made this food, and this food's blessed to me, but if that's how you're going to think about it, nah, count me out. I'll go get, I'll go get a burger somewhere else. <laughs> you know, that might not be a bad thing to do. Um, that might be a stretch. So that's about the, it's about the closest I could come, you know, just trying to imagine something. Yeah, Did I see a hand? Yes, sir. Well, so Christ was eating the last Passover meal, you know. Yeah. Monday, Thursday, and uh, but does it say anywhere in Scripture that it is the last Passover? Would give instructions specifically that says now? I mean, you know that John the Baptist said he was the, the Passover Lamb, or you know, the Lamb of God, takes away the sin of the world. But, but were there any more specific uh, instructions that says no more uh, Passover meals? So that would be, in keeping with the ceremonial law that's put away, um, that would be one point. The other point would be that, like Paul says explicitly, Christ is our Passover lamb. So there is no other Passover lamb now. There is no other Passover meal. When, he well, in that context where he says this is the new covenant, okay. and then says that it is his body that we're eating, and it is that very quickly erases all the other stuff. Chapter one the mm-hmm. Now, as a matter of um, again, early church history, you also have Easter simply the Easter celebration simply called Pascha and celebrated as a unit. So the the ancient way of thinking about Easter isn't so much the Triduum, the three holy days that we think of this time that stretches from um, well, it starts at sunset. So by by Hebrew reckoning, that's um, Friday, and that's the night he's betrayed. By Hebrew reckoning, that's Friday morning. So you remember in Genesis, um, they get it backwards. Uh, Evening and morning, the first day. If we were writing that, we would write it morning and evening, the first day. We reckon time differently. We reckon the days differently. They reckon the day starting with the night. So it's kind of a beautiful theology because while you're asleep, God's preparing and setting up everything you're going to do that day. <laughs> while you're resting, then comes the activity. We just view it differently. Um, whatever, it doesn't matter. Um, but the Triduum, then the three holy days, the way we think of it, being um, that time period that stretches from Monday Thursday, which would have been reckoned as as Friday to them, including then the crucif the Passion, crucifixion of Jesus. Um, the Holy Saturday, which is the Easter Vigil, and then that morning, which is Easter proper. And As you can tell from the vigil itself, we really should be having it at midnight. Why don't we? No one will come. So uh, then right into the Easter service, those three holy days were all collapsed as one, and it was simply called Pascha, Passover. And it's the Passover of our Lord. And so when you have that understanding of what he did and that liturgical understanding of what he did. Every Lord's Supper is the Pascha, is the Passover. And then we celebrate, according to the Church here, we celebrate that Pascha as as one event. And there's nothing wrong with having a Triduum, the three holy days. It's just we recognize it's all one whole, one reality. So no need to, uh, no need to have the Passover. Oh my goodness, we are over time. I am embarrassed and sorry, and I know there was another question or comment. Well... Thank you so much. I am so sorry. I'm really embarrassed. I need to start setting an alarm, you guys. My apologies. Let's close with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us